Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you. Thank you so much for being with us here this morning. It's good to see, or kind of see behind the light, so many of your faces. I also want to say thank you for wearing your masks and wearing them over your nose and your mouth according to uh, one particular regulation in the state of Massachusetts. That is what's required. So because they're not asking us to do something different that they're not asking Fenway Park to do or public schools to do, that's, that's what we're going to do. I want to pray that God helps us here this morning as we look at Romans 8 and we continue this simple gospel message here that we've started for some time in the series. It's proven that the gospel is just not a tweet and it's not a post and it's not as simple as it seems on the surface, but my goodness, God makes what he can do through us so simple, so powerful, and so easy if we'll allow him to. I believe what we're going to look at here is probably one of the more important messages you need to hear and understand, or let me say it this way, sections of the, the Bible that you need to hear and understand. 20 scholars were asked, if you were on an island and only one chapter of one book of the Bible were to wash up onto the shore, and that's all you would ever have for the Bible, what chapter and what book would it be? And 50% of those scholars, without communicating with each other, said Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. See, in the, in the book of Romans, it's really a very theological structure. He starts off with talking about sin, which we call homartiology, and he turns to the atheist and he says, you're guilty because there's no atheist by birth. You've looked at creation, and something inside of you said there's got to be something bigger, but rather than embracing and pursuing that truth, you stuffed it, you ignored it, and you rewrote it, and so you're guilty before God. And then God comes up to the moral person who says, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a, I'm a good person. And he says, no, you're not, because when you watch somebody doing cheating in their business, stealing, cheating on their wife, murdering someone, raping someone, your conscience inside you, something said, something's not right. This is wrong. And God brings before the moral people of the world, the witness to the stand, he brings our conscience and says, you're guilty because you violated your conscience. And then he turns lastly to the religious world. And we're sitting here, and we're like, oh, Jesus, thank you. Or, oh, you know what, Jehovah, you're so great. Thank you. I'm not like that person and not like this person. And I believe in you and, and I trust in you. And God says, oh, you're in worse shape than all of them because you have my law. You know, I say, you shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall have no idols before me. Honor your mother and father. He brings every single person before him and all he's trying to do is say this, unless you're willing to admit you're sick, you'll never look for a cure. And if you're one of those church people that you go around and you're looking at everybody else and everything that they're doing wrong, and you never have a broken moment in your life, something is deeply wrong, you're missing the point. God looks at the whole universe and says, guilty. And Paul takes literally three, two and a half chapters to do that in Romans 1 through two and a half into three. But then he takes almost five chapters. Think about the length of this. Five chapters and begins to talk about salvation. How many of you are glad that Jesus, Jesus is, is your savior? He forgives you of your sin. That if you turn to him and you say, God, I'm a terrible sinner and, and I know that I'm guilty, but I need you to forgive me. Jesus comes in and he cleans you up and he clears it out. He you, you would make an exchange. You say that cross was my cross. That death was my death. That burial was my burial. And you've risen 
my life the same way that Jesus rose. Now it's, it's, it's a, I'm still me, but yet that's the, the transaction that's taking place. Jesus staged my death for me and says, and here's my spirit for you to live off the insurance policy of my presence and of my power so that instead of you being a slave to sin, you could be a, sla- a debtor to living right. Imagine if somebody saved your life, they jumped in front of the road, pushed you out, to be hit and they had a wife and children and they gave their life so that she would live you wouldn't just look at that and be like hey thanks a lot no god says god god's saying my son died for you not so that you could just walk in any direction but that you could be free and live for me and walk in my spirit and walk in my presence and he takes he takes five chapters to explain it through the same way if you're married and someone dies you're freed from that in the same way that you were under the law when jesus died you were freed from it you don't have to run around in guilt and shame you don't have to run in condemnation and you don't have to be wrapped up in that vicious cycle literally five chapters and last week pastor dylan said it so well i'd I'd rather just quote him and say the road between who i am and who I ought to be is long, but it's worth the journey. One of my undergraduate teachers who ended up being my boss for a season said this, he says, I may not be who I ought to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. How many of you can say amen to that? I mean, this whole thing of Jesus coming into our life isn't about us just being forgiven, it's about us being changed and transformed. But it takes Paul five chapters. And I think the reason he does that is, is because it's, we have a deep insecurity when it comes to knowing that we're forgiven. Some of us, that might stem from maybe fathers that were not loving or not present. Some of us, it might be mothers or brothers or relationships that have damaged that whole ability for us. You see, a father For those of you that are fathers, a father is given so that they might be able to look at you and say, you can do this, you you are capable of so much more, and to get behind you and to cheer you and to love you and to stand there and to correct you and to direct you in your life. And yet the idea that a loving father is willing to forgive us is a very hard thing for us to rest in because most of us are really insecure. Ask your average person, did Jesus, does, that, that says that they believe in Christ, do you, do, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he was buried and buried uh, and on the third day rose from the dead? Yes. And then ask this question, do you believe that you will be in heaven with him for all eternity, loved by him? And most times you'll hear people say, I hope so. I hope so. John the Apostle said it like this, I write these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. But it takes God five chapters through Paul to deal with our insecurity of being at peace with this. And he moves from the doctrine of sin, homartiology, to the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and then he gets into chapter 8, which some say is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, sanctification. It's justification, salvation, just as if you've never sinned, but sanctification is God saying, and now I'm going to empower you to live a holy life. Many people can come to the place and say, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I have sin in my life. And, I, and then they can come to that place where they say, Jesus, please forgive me. But 
real breaking point for many people, the real stunted growth in so many people's lives, is to begin to say, I need to be accountable for my actions, and I need to begin to exercise the life that Jesus has given me by allowing his spirit to live it through me, to walk holy with your mouth, with your behavior, with your actions. And that's hard. In fact, it's, it's so hard that Paul in Romans 7, the, Pastor Dylan didn't reach this verse, but he goes on and he, sa- he, he gets to this point where at the end of the chapter, this verse, he didn't read this, but Apostle Paul says this, who will deliver me from, this is 7, Romans 7, 25, who will deliver me from this body of death? And if, if I could kind of say it the way that he's saying it, it's literally, you can hear him going back to what Pastor Dylan preached about. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. I hate myself. I want to do what's right, but I can't seem to do it. And the, and the thing I don't want to do, that evil, I don't want to do it, but yet I seem to do it. And, and then he go, he's going back and forth like, oh my goodness, I want to be the right person, but I can't. And I want to avoid the wrong thing, but I don't. And I go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's almost as if he says, I'm so disgusted with myself. And then he cries out and he says, oh my goodness, who's going to save me from this body of death? The body of death is actually something that the, the, the Romans did in battle against Greeks. In fact, uh, the Etruscan uh, regional king attacked the city of Troy. And one of the writers, his name is, is Virgil, he writes about this. And he says how they would take the enemy and they would take the corpses of the dead people that were there, sometimes for spite's sake, their own men, and they would tie them hand to hand, foot to foot, face to face, neck to neck, and they would tie the bonds so tight, and now the very thing that you killed begins to kill you. Paul's saying, how can I get free from this? I can't escape me, and I'm tied in it. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. How are you freed to change your behavior, to live a spirit-filled life? Because that is what God requires and desires for you. And many of us here this morning were trapped with that death on our back and that conflict that Pastor Dylan talked about. I don't want to do that, but I do it. And I want to do this, but I can't. And I don't know how to get free from myself. God, help me. And God says, hold tight. Here comes chapter 8. And that's what I want to lead in prayer with here as we talk about being, taking the wheel, the walk of, the drive of sanctification, letting Jesus take the wheel. How many of you want God to give you the power that you need to have a life of peace? I mean, I don't have to be a junkie to sin anymore. I don't have to be a junkie to junk anymore. God can set you free from your vices and empower you into a life of Christ-like virtue if you'll you'll let this power be at work in you. And Father, that's what we pray for here this morning. This is a very simple truth, and yet it's a simple gospel, and yet a very difficult one because we don't have it in our nature to do what you're going to ask us to do. And we confuse what it is uh, for us trying harder versus allowing your spirit to move completely through us. 
So there are some things that words are not going to be able to do. Situations this week are going to arise, and we're going to be given a chance to allow our lives to yield to the Spirit or to yield to the flesh. And Lord, we're going to continue in a training op of what it is to live a Spirit-filled life, and we're going to make some mistakes, but we want to head in the right direction. And this morning we say, Jesus, take the wheel of my life, Lord, drive us in the right direction. The road of sanctification leads to eternal life. We don't, we don't just want to acknowledge we're wrong, say a prayer, and walk through life in sin, shame, and guilt, or even worse, to just throw off all restraint and say, I'm just not going to be a Christian anymore because I just can't do it. Lord, we never could do it. We need your Spirit to do it through us. And so we ask for that power and that truth through your Word to be revealed this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Right as soon as Paul says that, the door hinges wide open and a new room opens called chapter 8. Driving your life in the right direction, the life of sanctification. God has called us to be holy. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God says this, he says, be holy as I'm holy. And that word holy is, is a word that in, in Greek, it doesn't come out as clear as it does in Hebrew because the Hebrew word literally means to set something aside. So I could have, I could have a glass. Listen, let me just give you a pet peeve. If I'm drinking a glass and, and that's my water, like don't sneak, don't sneak a sip behind my back. I was in college and I was teaching and my office was right off one of the rooms and I had a huge giant bottle of water. But what, what this person didn't know is, is that it wasn't filled with regular water. I had filled it with Dead Sea salt water, which is 10 times saltier than the ocean. It's absolutely disgusting. And so this Asian girl, this Asian student walked into my room and it was in between class and they're walking around and I go back into the class and turn around and hear, oh! And then she walks out and she goes, Padapada, disgusting! And I go, what? She goes, that water's disgusting. I go, that's what you get for trying to sneak a sip off of my water bottle. I go, that ain't water. That's dead sea water. And she like practically threw up. It was disgusting. And I know there were, but here's the thing, is that if I have a bottle of water, I am making that holy for me, set apart for me. Does that have any religious meaning? No. It's it just basically me saying it's mine and it's for this purpose. But then holy can also mean that something is set aside for a specific purpose for God. This building, this space is here so that we can gather together. We can meet with Jesus. We can sing in the spirit and be encouraged and uplifted vertically and horizontally, both together and in God's presence. And this, this place, the reason why people call it a sanctuary is because we believe it's a place that's set apart for meeting with God. And God is the most holy one. He is the separate. He's above all things. There is nobody like him. You, you, can't even, you can't even compare him to anyone. How do you even compare God to somebody who can touch the stars from the thumb to the pinky? There's no comparing him. But then he turns around and he looks at us and he says, and now you be holy. And you're like, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? How can I do that? And we're trapped in Romans 7. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And the thing I should do, I don't do. What a wretched person I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And God turns the page to chapter 8. And chapter 8 of Romans, verse 1, reads like this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. It means, it, in fact, the way that it's written in the original language, it doesn't even go back. There is therefore now. He starts off, he says, no condemnation. 
for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that word condemnation does not mean simply shame, and it doesn't simply mean guilt. It's a word that's used that says you were caught red-handed, you were, you were convicted in the court of God's law, and you have a lethal sentence that is going to be executed upon you. And God walks in by, by, the, by his son, by the spirit, and he walks in and he says, but those, for those of you who have turned to my son, who have done that exchange and have received grace and are trusting him for salvation, I want you to know something. You don't have to walk around in sin. You don't have to walk around in shame. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. So stop beating yourself up. Some of you are experts at punching yourself. I feel so poof, right? I mean, it almost looked ridiculous to do that. It's like Fight Club. Not recommending that movie, by the way, but. It doesn't say that there's no shortcoming for those that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that there's no failed attempts to be like Jesus for those that are in Christ Jesus. But what he does say is there's therefore now no condemnation penalty has been removed from you. Some of you in this room, you walk through your life and when bad happens to you, you either say it like this, why are you doing this to me? Or you say it like this, what am I doing? Why do I keep doing these? I, I must be getting, I must be getting punished. I must have brought this upon myself. Or you say it like, what could I have done that would have kept this from happening? And God's like, no, you're looking at it all wrong. You're my son. You're my daughter. There's no condemnation for you. It's in Christ Jesus. Well, that's really great news, Pastor Paul, because uh, I don't know about you, but I definitely know how to have a good time. I know that there's pleasure in sin for a season, and I could punch off and give you a fast, quick list of a thousand things that I would do if I did not believe that Jesus was real, that eternity was real, that, that Jesus' sacrifice meant anything, and I would just say, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and just cut loose and go. But I know that Christ is real. I've received him as Savior and Lord, and because of that, now I have to learn how to live what's called a sanctified life, that I look at things and I say others might but I won't now how do I do that well it means I have to first understand that there are two highways look at this Romans chapter 8 verses 2 through 4 for the law of the spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law is weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sin uh, of flesh and for sin he condemned it sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit in other words what God is saying is as if you put your flesh in a fight with God's law, your flesh will beat up the law every time, not to win, but to, to beat it to a point that convicts you and condemns you and destroys you. Your flesh is not powerful enough to look at the law of God and say, I'm just not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to use anymore. I'm not going to have fits of rage anymore. I'm not going to slander anymore. I'm not going to gossip anymore. I'm not going to slap anyone anymore. I'm not going to do... You, you are... If you put your flesh up against the requirements of what it is to walk a holy life, your flesh 
will win the day every time. It is impossible for your flesh to please God. But what does God do? He takes care of that problem and he says, here's how we're going to solve it. My son Jesus is going to save you and he's going to put to death and bury you and anyone who is dead and buried like a marriage. If you were married to somebody when that person dies, that person is free now from that relationship. And God buried Christ, buried you to free you so that you can live for God. Well, how do I do that? I love how one writer said, said it. He said this, he said, if Christ had not taken on our nature, our fleshly nature, he could not have been one of us. On the other hand, he had become, if he had become completely like us, then he couldn't have been our savior. Christ became what you and I are so we could become what he is. Not like God, but that we could be people who are people in flesh and blood that can actually live a holy life for Jesus Christ. It is God's will for you to walk straight in a crooked world. It is God's will for you to live for him. Listen, when you, people talk about this in the Western Christian world all the time, they look at the law and they say, praise God, God has set me free from the law. Really? So I'm free to murder, I'm free to rape, I'm free to do that, Jesus has set me free from that? That makes absolutely no sense. No, what God has done is he freed you from the consequence of the law through the death of Jesus Christ so that now you have a shot to begin not only to be forgiven, but now he is going to give you his spirit to give you the power to live for him. Listen to how he writes it. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel, both of them talk about a time coming where God will give us a new heart, where he'll write his laws on our heart and that he will take out the heart of stone and put within us a heart that desires to do what God wants us to do. And it's completely talking about what the work of Jesus would do and then what would be followed up with the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. There are two covenants, two highways, the law of the spirit and the law of the flesh, but it also is going to determine whether or not you live this life of holiness based off of how your mindset is. Someone was asking a general once, how is it that you win a war? When do you win the war? And, and he gave all these elaborate answers and he stopped and he said, you know what, in the med at the end of the day, the, the battle begins right here, whether you win or you lose. If you're walking in your Christian walk and you keep failing and you're already saying to yourself, there's no way that I can walk a holy, godly life. You're never going to do it. And so what God does is he bends our attention to verses five through eight. Listen to these verses. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh, cannot even please God. See, that word, the, the word flesh and spirit here is used more than any place in the entire Bible. In fact, within 30 verses, the word flesh, and within 30 verses, the word spirit are used almost 20 times each. Flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. What is this, this whole thing? I, I mean, you know, you can tell, like, you're, 
if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you know that you have a spirit, you have a soul. It's eternal. It's that breath of God within you. It's that life that though you dead, you, can, you die, though you continue to live. And then as sure as you walk through, you slam a, a hammer on your thumb, you pinch your finger in a door. It reminds you that you are also a person of the flesh. And God is trying to help us to see that flesh, carnality, sinful nature will not ever be able to do what you need to do. And so he turns our attention to the Holy Spirit and he says, it's great that you've acknowledged your sin. It's right that you understand and be secure that I've forgiven you. But what is important now is, is that you let my spirit begin to dwell and to work through you and to live through you and to give you the power to do what you can't do in yourself. Those who live according to the spirit, those whose dispositions, interests, desires are in the realm of the things of the Spirit and so prompt a response of impulses and leadings of the Holy Spirit that result in life and peace. But those that live according to the flesh, their interests, drives are in the realms of the things of the flesh and so they prompt by their appetites a life of the old carnal nature. How many of you have noticed that just because you say a sinner's prayer doesn't mean that you begin to live a sinless life? You see, the incomplete part to this is that you need to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work and walk and lead you in the right direction. Well, how do I know I'm on the wrong road? How do I know I'm driving in the wrong direction? Galatians 5, 19 to 23 talk about the difference. He gives clear markers of what it looks like to be a person of the flesh and a person of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then he goes and he says, let me tell you what the fleshly, carnal nature looks like. The nature of somebody who, although they go to church, they say a sinner's prayer, can still look like this. If the Spirit of God is not at work in their life, if they're not yielding to the Spirit, if they're not inviting God's Spirit on an ongoing basis to help us, to move us, to, to move through us. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions. It's amazing how much petty fighting and bitterness and jealousy is clumped into carnality here. And then he goes on, he says, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then he ends it like this, and he says, and things like this. In other words, I just don't have enough time and there's not enough paper and pen and ink in the world for me to tell you just how low a human can go. But even anything like this, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's sobering to me. That within the church of Jesus Christ, there is so much impurity, immorality, enmity, strife, jealousy, division, drunkenness. Even though it said sinners' prayers and even though it attends church, those things that work in our life are not the work of the Spirit. It is not what God has called you to do. It is not what God has called you to be. And he wants to change you by the power of his Spirit. There's an investigator based in New York City, in Brooklyn, in fact. His name is Stephen Rambrand, and he's an expert at pursuing cases of fake deaths. In fact, the title to his whole thing is, You Only Live Twice. This is the guy that finds you if you've staged your death. And what he, what he noted was, he's 
he, so far he's solved 750 of these cases in 30 years of practice. And in, in all of the years that he's done this, he, he said over and over again, sure enough, the one thing that people will mainly do it for is for insurance fraud. Fake their death, somebody collects the insurance, they meet up later and they live the life they never could. Other times people do it because of overwhelming debt. They can't get out of the pit they've dug themselves in, maybe a loan shark's in the circle, and so they get out of it. Other people, it's a crime-related thing. They've done a crime, they know they're guilty, they're gonna go away for the rest of their life, so they take off. And in fact, there's one country in the world, I won't tell you because I don't want to empower any of you, but they actually, you can buy a whole kit with a new birth certificate, passport, uh, um, citizenship, the whole thing, and they do that. And he says, what's inevitable about this group of people that try to end their life, make it look like they end their life in order to start a new life is that inevitably they always get caught. That, my friends, is what it is to be somebody who acknowledges your sin, asks Jesus to be your savior, and then throws, throw yourself right back into that life and lifestyle of sin without any change in your life. It's like you're allowing Jesus to stage your death so that not that you can live a new life and be free, but that you want to continue to pursue the life that you know that he doesn't intend for your life. Now, he mentions one other case. There was a young girl, and she, she drove her car to a lake, left her clothes on the shore, and she was gone. She had apparently, there was a, there was a I believe it was a, a, a note, a suicide note, and she had disappeared. And there was a friend from years back that said, I just need closure. And so he hired this investigator, and what he found out was the young lady was in a very massively abusive relationship, and she said, I'm either going to get killed, or I'm going to lose hope in my life and kill myself. And so I thought, if I just staged my death, I could finally start a new life. He continued the investigation, found out that the parents knew about her being alive. And he said, this was one case where I said, I'm going to leave this one alone. She deserves a new life. Can I tell you, that's what sin does to you. It abuses you. It destroys you. It wants to kill you and ruin your life. And what Jesus did for you was to end your life through his son, not so that you could live the way you want to live, not so that you could stay the way that you've stayed, but that the power of the Holy Spirit could change your life to begin to live a new life of freedom in Christ Jesus. And to conclude this, let me read the final section. How does this all take place, Pastor Paul? Because I, I track you on this. It makes sense. It's logical. Paul says it in verse 9 through 14. Listen to this. You, however, I want you to notice how many times the word dwell is used here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, God's, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It's interesting. Many people identify themselves. I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Presbyterian. And God's identification for us being a follower of Jesus is that we're led by the spirit. I mean, is the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues? Or is it being filled with the Holy Spirit means you're led by the spirit and you're living a holy life and all of those gifts are at work in you. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. That is not talking about physical resurrection, friend. 
It's talking about the ability that although you're already dead, God wants you to begin to live the life of Jesus Christ on this side of eternity. To be able to take an inventory of your life and say, that thing that I'm doing, I need to just stop it and I need to get off of this. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And the thing I do, I don't want to do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And Jesus comes in and says, I did. But I want to introduce you to my spirit who wants going to give you the power to live out that holy life that he wants to live inside of you and dwell in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, listen to what the, the Spirit in you does, puts to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you and the Holy Spirit act like a bounty hunter on the behaviors of your life that are not pleasing to God. And you begin to say, I may not be who I ought to be, but I refuse to be who I used to be. I know I'm not powerful enough to be that person. So God, by your Holy Spirit, fill me with your presence. Lead me with your spirit. Fill me with your power. And we'll take out these things one issue at a time. God, take care of the gossip. Lord, take care of the perversion. Jesus, take care of the addiction. There's enough power in your spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. Then there's enough power in your spirit to help me to live a holy life, to live what you call me to be, to look like Jesus, to be a little Christ, to be Christian. Because that word dwell in the original language is what's called the present active imperative participle. It's a present active participle, it, it, not the imperative, but present active. That's a big fancy language that maybe one or two people in this room understand. But for you and I, you know what that means? It means that God is there at all times. You see, you call this the sanctuary, you've got it all wrong. Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, and that God's Spirit dwells within you. And he's not waiting for you in a song. He was waiting with you in all that COVID isolation. Saying, I want to visit you. I want to empower you. I want to help you. I want to lift you out of your depression. I want to break you free from your addiction. There's no such things as perfect circumstances to change your life. Only a perfect spirit. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. He said, I won't leave you as orphans. And Paul says in the book of Timothy, or to the book of Titus, he says this, grace from God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches you to say no to ungodly and worldly passions, to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age. Titus 2, 11 through 12. And what that means is this, is that when you're in there and you're trying to live in Romans chapter 7 and you're trying to beat the law with your own flesh and your own willpower, it's no wonder that we lose every time. And God's saying, would you please step out of seven? I've already given you the security that you're in my son and that I forgive you. And I want to start off chapter eight right from the beginning to just remind you there is no condemnation. There's no penalty. There's no punishment. I'm not trying to do this, but it's for those who, not, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Because you can do all of those right stages and then never commit yourself to a life that is saying, God, I want to follow your spirit. I want to be led by your presence. I want to live a holy life. It, it's, there, there, is, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus who are being led by the spirit. Who's leading you though? Are you in the lead of your life or is Jesus really the lead? Is the spirit dwelling in you? Because if you've received Christ as Savior and Lord, he's there. 
And he wants to awaken a leading process with you to be able to look not at drugs and say no alone, but to look at sin and say no. There's enough power in Jesus to say no and walk away and change. Not in your flesh. It's in that moment you begin to say, God, if you don't help me right now, I'm going to repeat the same behaviors in my life. And you know that I'm not strong enough to do it. Would you, by your spirit, lead me out of this place, out of this moment? Sometimes it might be as simple as God saying, then get up off the couch and get, or get up off the computer or stop driving over to that person's house or find a new job or get rid of those drinking buddies or whatever it is in your life. I don't know, different strokes for different folks. The Holy Spirit leads very practical sometimes. And then other moments, his presence just shows up and says, this is the way, walk in it. And you know that you know that you know that's the emergency hatch. Because the Bible says that he never gives us more than we can bear, but always provides a way of escape. There's always a way of escape. And when you're in that moment and you're overwhelmed by whatever you're addicted to, whether it's slander or or sexuality or drugs or whatever, it's at that moment that you look inside yourself and say, oh God, I'm gonna live out Romans seven here, but if your spirit lives in me, you can quicken my mortal body. Show me the way of escape from this. I'm tired, I know where this path leads. I wanna follow the road of being led by your spirit. My friend's mom, Rico, he was best man in my wedding. We were in Bible college together. I'll never forget his mother, who had an out of control drinking life, hopped on the highway when she was so, so, so gone. And she drove eight miles on the wrong side of the highway with eight police cars trying to pull her over for 20 minutes. She was doing ridiculous speeds. It's a miracle she's even alive. But some of you in this room, you're on the wrong road headed in the wrong direction because you're yielding and following the path that seems right to you instead of saying, Holy Spirit, lead me here. Don't get me wrong, I'm incredibly practical. I don't wake up every day and say, Lord, should I wear a plaid shirt or a black shirt? There are some situations that, that are just practical. Most of the things in life are practical. But when it comes to this issue, when it comes to this stuff, God wants to give you the specific instruction because it's his will that you live holy, that you be filled with the Spirit because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the King James, they add this, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, it's not there in the original Greek, but it is in there in Greek a few verses later. They just threw it there because they don't want anyone to mistake, to think that you can just come to Jesus, admit your sins, say a prayer, and then go in your own direction and think that you're okay, because you're not. But being a child of God means that you're led by the Spirit of God. And if we could stand across this room, for time's sake, we're gonna just pray a simple prayer here. And it's your invitation to say, God, I've let your son into my life, but I wanna be led by the Spirit of God that's in my life. I need the Holy Spirit. And I'm not just talking like a book of Acts chapter two thing, I'm talking about a, this will save your life. This will save your soul eternally. If you learn to yield to the Holy Spirit, Let's yield ourselves, just lift your hands if that's your desire here. Come on, you know who you are when nobody's watching and you're as sick of it as I am, aren't you? But there's enough power in God's spirit. And that's what we pray for right now, Holy Spirit. 
Would you begin to awaken the truth that you have been inside of us all along from the moment we invited you to be Savior? But it's only through the power of your Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to allow you to be Lord of our life. Lord of our life. Lord of our our, not just our sin and our shame, but Lord of our successes and victories. Lord that directs us in the right direction. There's a way that seems right to us that leads to dead ends. Lord, we can't live at a dead end, but we can die there. We can drive the wrong way in traffic. Lord, your, your spirit is like those eight police officers saying, get over, pull over. You're going in the wrong direction. You're going to wreck yourself. God, in the name of Jesus, would you awaken the Holy Spirit within our life? Would you do it with every age, whether we're 80 or we're 8? God, would you begin to awaken the Holy Spirit within us, that we would begin to invite you, that we would ask you, Lord, take the wheel, lead my life. It's, it's a yielding. It's a yielding intersection. It's like a rotary, God. We've got to be aware of the flow of traffic and follow the lead of your Spirit. And so we ask you and we invite you, if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, and it does, then now we pray that we would begin to enter into that important part of life, to living the Christian life and walk according to the spirit. I pray this week, this month, and this year that this truth would play out again and again and again. Lord, we may not be who we ought to be. We're going to still, there is, it doesn't say there's no failure for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no failed attempts. No, there's no condemnation. You freed us from that sick cycle of shame. But now you're calling, inviting us, saying, would you look for my presence and yield to it? You're free from that. You're free from it. And through your spirit, that we would begin to live a life holy and pleasing and acceptable to you. We love you and that's why we want to do it. You're the one that took the hit from the car to save us. You sacrificed everything so that we could live on for you. Lord, may our life be the legacy of your sacrifice and one that is worthy of it. Pray you bless your people and bless their walk and may it be led by the Holy Spirit as they yield to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray this week that God will just wake you up out of your sleep, wake you up in the middle of your temptation, in that moment where you're about to be overcome with everything that you've been overcome with, you'd be overcome with the love of God. And that'll be God's spirit and reminder to you that he's not sick of you and he doesn't hate you. He knows that you're frail and human, but he loves you and he wants to give you enough power to walk straight in a crooked world. You can do it through his spirit. Amen? Amen. Tag team with the Holy Spirit. Take out those sins one by one and know that you're secure in Christ. Be led by the Spirit. God bless you and thank you for joining us this morning.